0: I bring you my words of reflection. The reflection I wanted to share with you is about another set of characters: the good, the bad, the ugly, and the unlikely. Borrowed title from the movie of the late 1960s. How many of you have seen it in reruns or otherwise? I remember watching all three of Clint Eastwood's trilogy. From 1967 to 69, at one on one night at a drive-in for two dollars. <laughs> That's how old I am. Yeah, I saw it on the essentially the first run and the first rerun. But those three characters are cowboys looking for buried treasure in the desert Southwest, which was actually filmed somewhere in Spain. I understand. Their stereotypes, the actors who played, played those characters were, of course, Clint Eastwood, Lee Van Cleef, and Eli Wallach, all of whom were equally ugly, in my estimation. And uh, theoretically, Clint Eastwood was the good. Lee Van Cleef, because he wore black and a black hat, must have been bad. And Eli Wallach, because he looked vaguely swarthy and ethnic, was taken to be uh, a Mexican-American. In fact, Eli Wallach was 100% Jewish-American who went to the University of Texas as an undergraduate major in theater, I happen to know. He recently died at the age of, I think, 85. He was quite a good actor. He had many, many roles as a villain in the time that I remember. How do you tell the difference? Between the good, the bad, and the ugly. How do you tell the difference? Without resort to stereotypes, without resort to false equivalencies. How do you do that? Because we are used to having stereotypes used to tell long stories in short ways. But one of the ways that we would be tempted to tell whether someone is good, bad, or ugly is to ask them, What's your religion? And if they're X or Y or Z, we would tend to put them in a category. And, of course, the easiest category for most of us is the category of Unitarian or Universalist. Most of us are good guys, right? And for purposes of the announcement of this service, I, I went to a stereotype and said, well, let's talk about the Unitarians who've been presidents the Unitarians who served our country in public roles. There have been five different American presidents who were Unitarians, at least in some way. John Adams and John Quincy Adams of the same family in Quincy, Massachusetts, which was then Braintree. Thomas Jefferson of our beloved Commonwealth of Virginia, who I understand now is known as both good and bad because of his position with respect to slavery. Millard Fillmore of New York and William Howard Taft of Ohio, all of them born in the, um, let's see, that would be the 18th or 19th century. Their party identifications were varied, Federalist, Democrat, Republican, Whig, and Progressive Republican. There are also two honorable mentions that we love to bring up. We are told that Abraham Lincoln was influenced by popular Unitarian preacher Theodore Parker, especially in his anti-slavery positions. And he had many positive interactions with the Universalists of his time and Unitarians who were also ministers or spouses of ministers that he spent a lot of time with. But, how, but Abraham Lincoln did not make public statements about his own affiliation and was not a church goer in a regular sense. So we can't claim him. Many of us were also proud to learn that Barack Obama's white grandmother intended that both his mother and Barack would be Unitarians. He often was told that he was uh, attending the Unitarian Universalist Church, where his grandmother was a very prominent leader. Uh, He was told that he had to attend religious education there as a child and adolescent while he was living with them in Hawaii. And we know that his grandmother's memorial service was also held in that Honolulu church just before his election in 2008. But as an adult, he and Michelle and their two children have chosen to identify mostly with the Christian after African-American uh, UCC church in uh, Chicago. We also could claim uh, American Vice President John Calhoun, who was a known committed Unitarian as one of the organizers of the All Souls Congregation in Washington, D.C. He, however, is remembered in South Carolina as one of the most stalwart defenders of slavery in his long career in Congress. Of course, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and Millard Fillmore also served as vice presidents before being elected as president or succeeding to that office on the death of of a predecessor and former President William Howard Taft was later appointed to the Supreme Court. Their achievements varied from very positive to neutral to reputations of negativity. We could say that Millard Fillmore has been often cited as one of the least effective presidents, partly because he was not elected to to that office and partly because of the times. He tended to be a compromiser when times should not have called for compromise on the issue of slavery. But the most recent Unitarian governor of Illinois, Adlai Stevenson, was twice nominated to be the Democratic presidential candidate against uh, and he ran against some some general named Ike. He did later serve President Kennedy as one of the first United States ambassadors to the United Nations. Adlai Stevenson was widely respected as a statesman and an intellectual. But in losing twice, he, shall we say, diminished his reputation. We also know that many Unitarians and Universalists have been elected to serve in Congress or held prominent appointed cabinet positions, including Secretary of State, Attorney General, and we know at least three Unitarians served as Secretary of Defense in the last 40 years, usually four Republican presidents. When asked, why did you appoint me? I'm not of your party. And you know, you you don't know much about me. They said, you're a Unitarian, you're going to be rational about how you do things as a Secretary of Defense. (laughs) We know there has been one, at least one, Prime Minister of Canada, Sir Francis Hinks, and one Prime Minister of New Zealand, Robert Stout, who were both Unitarians. And we know of one British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, who was raised in a Unitarian family, Although it is unclear if he considered himself Unitarian as an adult, it was no longer politically uh, advantageous to be Unitarian in Britain uh, between World War I and World War II. But because he is mostly remembered for his colossal failures in negotiating with Hitler to avoid war, because he felt the Germans were in a superior position, he gave the British government's consent to the German annexation of Austria and Czechoslovakia just before they invaded Poland in 1939. Now what does this have to do with anything? It has to do with stereotyping. It has to do with our expectations. Who's good, who's bad, who's ugly. I talked a little bit to the children and you about anthropologist Jane Goodall, who studied chimpanzee behavior in the natural African habitat for almost 40 years. After some initial missteps, she was eventually able to become an accepted part of the chimp community as the lowest in the pecking order among adult chimpanzees. She was sort of an adopted younger sister for some of those chimpanzees. But she found that there were many behavioral parallels with human families and groups. At first, her analyses were rejected by the scientific community, but because she kept careful records of her observation, she eventually convinced the doubters about the ability of chimpanzees to use tools to be emotionally uh, linked to other chimpanzees throughout lifetime, to have ways of adapting to each other. But over the many years she spent with her chimp families, eventually she noted that there would be that a split developed among the chimpanzees of of the tribe that she was observing. Eventually, two groups were created, a new, relatively small troop set up in the south, leaving the northern part under the control of the original population that she had come to watch. But she says, once the alpha males of the original community realized they were stronger and there were more of them, they attacked the split-off group. There were gang attacks of extraordinary brutality. The male chips pounded and pounded their victims and left them to die of their injuries. They did things to their fellow chimps that they would never do within a community, but which they were able to do when they were trying to kill a prey animal or the chimpanzees they had come to define as their inferiors, their enemies. It was the equivalent in our own species of what Hitler did to human beings, of dehumanizing them, a frequent prelude to an atrocity. The war was a disaster, said Jane. It was awful, not just for the chimps, but for me. I thought they were like us, but nicer in the state of nature. It was a real shock to see what they did to each other. And that's why it seems so dreadful. Now, we know that the parallels that she demonstrated between Homo sapiens, us, and chimpanzees, who are called pantroglodytes, are deep and numerous, And we know more about that because of Jane Goodall. But she also says there are other crucial differences that divide our species. The most important one, she says, is straightforward. We have expressive language that is subject to finer distinction. They can communicate by embracing, by patting, by looking, and they make lots of sounds to each other. But they cannot sit and discuss. They cannot teach about things that are not present, as far as we know. In other words, they can't talk about the past, and they really can't plan for the future. They can just say, now, now, now. I was really privileged to see Jane Goodall introduce herself using the the sounds that that the other chimps made when they saw her coming, and that she would parrot back to them. And it was amazing. She would do gestures and make hoots and pants and all sorts of noises. And that was their way of saying, welcome, Jane. And she would say, I hear you. I'm welcoming. I feel welcome by imitating what the sounds that they made and the gestures. But this takes us to the heart of Goodall's discoveries about the nature of the chimpanzee and its real implications for our understanding of our nature. She says language and discussion developed Our higher brain function. The brain of the chimp and the brain of the human are not that different anatomically. But we started to talk to each other. And that made our brain develop in special ways. Because there were more and more things that we could do with that brain. Of course, chimps chimps can do all sorts of things that we thought that only we could do. Like tool making and abstraction and generalization. They can learn some kinds of language, sign language, and they can use the signs. They can follow instructions over time with training. But when you think of our intellects, even the brightest chimp is like a very small child, maybe a five or six-year-old at the very best. Clearly, we have learned a great deal, not just about our evolutionary cousins, but about ourselves, thanks to the work that Jane Goodall began at Gombe 50 years ago and to the other chimp observation projects that have been set up thanks to Jane's pioneering work. I found a sermon that was delivered by a Canadian woman, uh, Jessica Rodella, which I am going to use now as sort of an extraction of what is actually the implication of Jane Goodall's work. She says, the last several years, at least since the election of President Obama, Much of political discourse has seemed to focus on adversarial positions. What is the core of that feeling? We might call it partisanship, a committed bias to support one's own group interests above and beyond the wider good. Partisanship can be narrowly justified by loyalty, but it too often takes the form of my party, my people, right or wrong such an uncompromising, unreasoned attitude is inherently unethical and theologically unsound for Unitarian Universalists. Partisanship is logically unsound because our complex lives transcend the simple dualism of right or wrong, either or, us or them. Partisanship is unethical for Unitarian Universalists because our values require that we work for the common good that we evaluate with our higher faculties our reason and judge with experience every decision that we make as unitarian universalists we must challenge the partisan idea that the end of my getting what i think is right justifies whatever means i want to use for our liberal religions the means do matter for us revelation is not permanently sealed so the Understanding of what truth is is a process that we have to use ethically. Ours is a faith of questions, not answers. We must challenge ourselves to practice resilience and a tolerance for ambiguity and also to develop our ability to see the full range of options differently. We are not chimpanzees. We have to have complex interpretations of reality and outcomes. Sometimes we might find our goals differ very little from those of our more conservative neighbors. Ultimately, both would aim to leave this world a better place than when we found it. Where we differ is usually in our radically different conceptions about motivation and method. We differ on why we want to achieve the particular goal and how we will do that, what we are willing to sacrifice, and how we prioritize the steps or means that we would use to achieve that goal. Of course, prioritizing is a key issue in conflict management in almost every culture known. According to something called values orientation theory, there are only five universal values, five big questions which all societies at all times must find some solution to. Because how the group is predisposed to understand, give meaning, and solve these common problems is an outward manifestation of its innermost values, how it sees the world, our value orientation. This is from something called the Harvard Value Study of anthropologists in the 1940s and 50s that's been refined in multiple studies since then. Their research led to the conclusion that the culture would answer each of the five questions with one of three possible responses. And I hope you'll be patient with me while I give you the five um, uh, questions and three responses to each. Once you hear them all, I think you'll see they're easily categorized. First is, what is the group's orientation towards time? Should we focus on the past and the conservation of tradition, should we fo- should focus on the present, change tradition for present needs? Should we focus on the future and planning for tomorrow? Excuse me. <clears throat> the second question, how should we relate to nature? Should we attempt to master and control nature? Should we attempt to live in harmony with nature, exerting only partial control? Or should we be submissive to the forces, forces of nature and try to control as little as possible. Pardon me. <coughs> <coughs> the third question is how should we relate to one another? Should our systems of authority form the basis for making decisions? Should we relate to each other as equals and seek consensus in our decisions? Or should we emphasize our individuality in autonomous decisions, much as a libertarian perspective would have us do? And then the fourth question, what motivates our actions? Should our actions focus on being? Should our actions focus on becoming? Or should our actions focus on achieving, aligned with external motivations? So Whether we are looking at our desire for self-expression, our internal motivations, or external motivations. People who are alpha or A-type folks will tend to want to achieve a lot. People who are meditators or Buddhists will want to be be in being. And some will want to be in an improvement mode, always trying to self-improve, to become better people. And then finally, the fifth question is what is our collect our perspective on collective or individual character and whether or not that quality can change? In other words, are human beings essentially good? Are they essentially evil or are human beings both good and evil? In other words, are you good? Are you bad or almost irrelevant? Are you ugly? You could be all three, I presume, but that's my perspective. That's how I would answer that question. The vastly different ways that we as human beings individually and collectively prioritize those five questions can lead to interpersonal conflict or even to international war. The prioritizing of our values indicates what compromises, if any, we would make to keep or establish peace. But the key to learning to love your opponents, both political and otherwise, would lie in distinguishing our differences. Now, that may sound counterintuitive. The usual approach to learning to get along with one another is by oversimplifying our similarities and ignoring our differences. False equivalency. As we declare ourselves one big happy family. And of course, if we understand that we have no differences, then we should all live happily ever after together. But it doesn't work that way, even among chimpanzees. We easily see the destination we have in common. But when we disagree on how to get there, we feel betrayed and mystified at how mistaken a neighbor or friend could be because they seem so intelligent. They seem like our kind of people. If they just weren't so stubborn or misinformed or selfish, then they would see the light and we could get back to agreeing about how right I am, how right we are, how right, how right that our perspective is. But we see this kind of cycle repeated over and over again, even in family disagreements, at work, in neighborhoods, or even at church. The failure to distinguish our divisions asks for inappropriate, premature compromise. It tempts us to try to set aside differences instead of honestly engaging with our differences. We could, at least in theory, learn far more from one another in investigating the boundaries of our differences rather than trying to design each and every meeting, every potential initiative, or even every worship service as one size fits all. But when we encounter honestly our perceived opponents and take the opportunity to engage with those differences, either in the world or within the walls of this church, our cherished assumptions can be challenged. If we disclose our differences and to some degree become vulnerable, it would allow us to better articulate why we believe what we believe, why we have a position that's different, and would force us to consider creative options that we cannot see when we take a stand by facing a mirror, when we don't actually understand anybody else. We only understand ourselves. Diversity can enrich us by increasing our effectiveness in (laughs) problem-solving by widening our field of vision, by seeing more of what is real. As in the martial art practice of judo, the the master can turn the body and allow the force of the opponent's attack to gain leverage and advantage. Your opponent's agenda can be your best friend in engaging their energy because you are after the same thing ultimately. It's an interesting paradigm. And so the promise and potential of values-oriented theory, values-orientation theory, and the the idea of working together by honest engagement can lie in our willingness to remember to ask the relevant questions and stick around long enough to really listen to the answers. It means when we talk that we must do so with both curiosity and compassion, but most of all, with respect. That's all there is to constructive engagement. Now, UU theologian and educator Sharon Welch, who teaches at the uh, Meadville Lombard Seminary, has written, by respect, we do not mean agreement, but taking someone so seriously that you ask why they think as they do. We have to stay at the table with one another and, even when it is discouraging, or baffling, or inconvenient, or even maddening. Because diversity of opinions can promote true dialogue, mutual understanding. Without dialogue, there is no communication. Without communication, there is no education. Without education, without learning, there can be no true transformation. In other words, if I am totally about persuading someone else of my opinion, and not listening to what they say, I am almost certainly facing a a brick wall that will not change. And I have made myself a brick wall that is not open to change. And what I would ask you to do in this particularly uh, vulnerable time is to consider how much of our engagement With society is trying to predefine who's good, who's bad, who's ugly and who's unlikely and how we tell the difference. Most of us have collected in this little chapel and determined that we want to be called Unitarian Universalists because we find resonance with the opinions and the values and the priorities that are expressed here. And there's nothing wrong with that. You need a home where you're comfortable. You need a place where you feel people are like you. But then, when we go out into the world and we experience people who are different, who are really, really fundamentally different, how do we engage with them? How do we determine which of them are potentially good and not all bad? How do we know until we are fully engaged with them? And I, I dare say... That although the sermon before an election is often called the Jeremiah, when the preacher says, we're all going to hell in a handbasket unless you do X, I I challenge us to move to the next level and say, what happens to all of us on Wednesday when we are in conversation with people who were way different than we were, who express their opinions and their values and their priorities in a different way than we did? And maybe we are tempted to say, "Tough luck, we won," or, "Oh my God, I can't believe it, we lost." And they say, "Who are you talking, we, Tonto?" I am. I am honestly at that place in my life where I am seriously concerned about the implications of what would happen if a particular candidate wins. On Tuesday. And I am honestly at a time in my life where I'm terrified about what might happen if that person loses on Tuesday. Maybe that's where you are too. It's a very, very um, anxiety provoking place in time, in life, and in our experience of our collective life as Americans. But perhaps if we look beyond Tuesday, after we express ourselves most forcefully in our own opinions, in our own priorities, in our own values, that we move back one notch or maybe two or maybe ten and say the difference between Clint Eastwood and Lee Van Cleef and Eli Wallach was not that big. And the difference between the monkey and the chimpanzee and you and me is, is a great deal. But in the great scheme of things, we're part of the interconnected web of all existence, of which we are only a small part. We can do many destructive things. Let us try to do what we can to do constructive things with our words, with our actions, with our sense of responsibility to the world. Blessed be. Amen. Our closing song is number 114, which is uh, a different title than the one that's in there. Forward Through the Ages. Forward Through the Ages, which is a, a song of resolution. It's it's.